Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives Podcast. I'm Nick Agar-Johnson, your host. Today we're going to do a deep dive on one of the teams that is pretty much a lock for the Eastern Conference playoffs. One of the few teams that is pretty much a lock for the Eastern Conference playoffs, in my view anyway, the Boston Celtics. So I'm going to bring on Jeremy Stevens to talk a bit about their offseason preview of the season to come and a couple of pieces he's written over the past week. So Jeremy, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. Fresh off of a win against Chicago, who spanked us a week ago. It's nice to have a recovery game. I love the revenge win. <laughs> revenge wins are always fun. So let's start with their offseason. And really, when you talk about the Celtics offseason, there's one person who jumps to the forefront, and that is Al Horford. He is a multiple-time All-Star. He's coming into Boston on a four-year max deal, and he's been their starting center, although at the time of this podcast, he's out in the concussion protocol. The biggest worry for me with Al Horford is, will he rebound well enough for the Celtics to continue to play him at center, or will they need to look for someone to lock down the middle and move Horford to power forward? Yeah, I don't see the rebounding getting much better. The Celtics do, they make a lot of adjustments. I think that's how they beat Chicago. The the defense was a lot more aggressive, but the rebounding, I don't think is going to change too much. He still fits as well into the center or power forward role as anyone else we have. They're all going to hover around probably five, six, seven, eight rebounds. You know, he's nine years in at this point. I don't, I don't see why the rebounding would change too much. The interesting thing for me is that as recently as 2012-13, Horford averaged more than 10 boards. And other than the 2011-2012 season, from his rookie year in 07-08 through 2012-2013, he was basically at or just barely under 10 rebounds a game. And since then, he had 8.4 per game in 2013-14. 7.2 in 14-15, 7.3 in 15-16, and only 5.3 boards per game so far for the Celtics. Now, rebounding will be an issue for them, but I think that overlooks how great of a fit Horford is on the offensive end. He's a solid shooter from pretty much anywhere inside the three-point line, and last season he started trying to expand his range beyond the three-point line. He is a canny passer, he makes the right play, and on defense, he's one of those guys that's just always in the right place. Yeah, he his straightaway three-pointer looks surprisingly good. I always thought that that was a tough spot. But the straightaway three looks good. The passing is really good. I would think he's top two or three. Well, Isaiah's definitely number one in assists on the team. Horford could be two or three, though, so he's finding the open guys. Yeah, the thing about Horford in terms of his fit with Boston is that last year their big man rotation was a bunch of players who were basically specialists. You have Amir Johnson, who's a screen setter and defensive player without much of an offensive game, although he did have that crazy third quarter Unreal. Against, against Chicago. They also have... Kelly Olynyk, who's currently injured, but his role as a big man is really mostly to stretch the floor. He's not a particularly solid defensive player in general. The thing about Horford is he provides basically everything the Celtics could want from a big man, except for rebounding and losing Jared Sullinger this past offseason. And Evan Turner, who was a solid rebounder for a wing player, is going to leave them struggling on the boards for a lot of this year. 
Yeah, you were you were identifying everyone as some sort of specialist. I always thought Sullinger was kind of like a boxing out specialist. It's very, very specific, but he put the big butt to good use. He's already injured out in Toronto, so e- even with that hindsight, I didn't want them to keep him, but it, it is something they'll have to recover from losing. And I, I would expect more tinkering from Brad Stevens. He's been pretty vocal about lineups being sort of fluid, and we've seen a lot of Tyler Zeller early who I think has earned the minutes, even though I trash talk him on Twitter on a daily basis. Zeller might be in the rotation to stay, because he, he's, he's surprisingly mobile for kind of how frail he looks. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to Zeller later, but I do want to talk about the other free agent acquisition that Boston made just briefly, and that's Gerald Green, who's had a very up-and-down NBA career, and when I say very up-and-down, I mean from drafted in the first round to literally playing in Siberia to making a career comeback with the Nets and having a role on NBA teams these past few seasons. He's a shooter and a ridiculous dunker and really not all that much else. Do you think he'll have a role in Boston this season? Do you think he's just going to be one of those end-of-the-bench guys that they bring in if they need somebody towards the end of games? Yeah, so he played, I I think, 13 minutes against the Bulls last night. And I think that's about the right amount for him. He's he's really, as you said, he's instant offense and there's not much else. But what I find interesting is he played a lot of, the bulk of his minutes, I think, were in the fourth quarter, which I'm curious as to why Brad left him in for that because he's been going to Jalen Brown uh, at the end of games prior to playing against the Bulls. So I think the amount of minutes was right. He is still leaving a lot of points on the table, I think. He's not knocking down enough open shots so his his job is sort of safe but with the amount of depth we have and with i don't know if if the roster gets healthy i don't i, I wouldn't be surprised if his role diminished to almost never playing because if, if he doesn't look fresh this early i don't know how it's going to get any better for him later you touched on jalen brown briefly so let's move on to him after one last thought on gerald green which is he's the oldest player on the celtics roster which was really shocking to me actually looking through their players but enough on that. Let's move to the youngest player on the Celtics, Jalen Brown, taken with the third overall pick in this last draft, courtesy of my Brooklyn Nets. Uh, I talked on previous pods about my Sacramento Kings fandom, but my Eastern Conference team is the Nets. But moving on to Jalen Brown, he's played minutes at both the three and the four so far this year. He's definitely a raw player, but he's shown flashes of of what he can be, especially on the defensive end. I'm actually really impressed. I didn't think Jalen was going to be super ready for the season. I thought he was going to play regardless, but in the summer league, he was kind of reckless with his driving to the basket. He still drives now, but he will absorb contact and and just maintain the form he was sort of hovering above the ground with and and gracefully finish plays, which is I I didn't think he would be so refined in so little time because even even preseason games he was pretty reckless. And all of a sudden he's like throwing these half-court on a dime bounce passes. He's knocked down a couple threes. He's finishing these and one plays. I mean, he's already playing like a veteran. So I didn't think he would get there that quick, but he's going to get a lot of minutes this year. Although, again, didn't play much yesterday. Had some early foul trouble, which, uh, again, I don't know why Gerald Green was at the end of the game instead of Jalen, but. I think he's he's so far ahead of schedule as far as how young he is to be, you know, he's like 6'7", 230 at age 19 is unbelievable. So Yeah, he's built like a five or six year veteran and he just turned 20. So if he can continue to build on 
has been a solid stretch to open the season. Celtics will have found something really useful. But speaking of him building on his solid start to the season, let's go quickly into the season preview. Now, the recent ankle injury to Jay Crowder probably means that Brown's going to start at the three. Does that sound right to you? I would think so. Brad Stevens, as as I've said, confused me with prioritizing Gerald Green yesterday. But I, I would think it would be Jalen, especially for defensive purposes. So let's just go through the starting lineup for the Celtics really quickly. For the first four games of the season, it's been Isaiah Thomas, Avery Bradley, Jay Crowder, Amir Johnson, and Al Horford at center, except for the game against Chicago where he was injured, so they put Tyler Zeller in at his spot. Now, the Crowder injury hopefully won't be a long-term thing, but it will open a slot in that starting lineup. So I guess my question is, do you think that the starting five they rolled out at the beginning of the season is going to be what they end the season with, just given the trouble that they might have on the backboards? I think they'll they they'll stick with that starting five just because the offense has been just unbelievable. I think after three or four games, we had guys shooting 50%, someone was shooting 58%. The, the percentages are just so high. Obviously, the offensive rebounds are a killer, or giving up offensive rebounds, to be specific, has been killing us. But I think the offense is way too good to pass up. But to to be fair, to see both sides of it, I wouldn't be surprised if Tyler Zeller did start over Amir Johnson, because despite how good Amir was against Chicago, he had an extremely slow start to the season. Yeah, I, I could see Zeller taking over, but I think the, the, the five that they started with is probably the best five that they have. Let's go quickly from that just into a overview of the big man rotation. So Kelly Olenek's been out at the start of the year. Al Horford added the concussion protocol. Tyler Zeller played in his place. Do you think that the Celtics should, I mean, the Celtics, you seem to think, should play them off the bench, but do you think Olenek should be maybe in a in a sixth-man role? Should he be sort of reduced to more of a role player? Because he, he played major minutes last year, and I'm just not sure the Celtics are going to be able to accommodate that this season. Yeah, I think the bench needs the offense more than the starting lineup does, and Brad Stevens has kind of been vocal about saying Marcus Smart is sort of the sixth starter. I don't see any way that Olenek somehow becomes a seventh starter. I think that's where the six-man role really starts. So he'll be valuable off the bench. He shot 40% from three last year. I don't know. I hope he comes back soon. Yeah, Olenek can be really helpful for their offense, although you did touch on it briefly how incredible their offense has been to start the season. It's way too early to make long-term predictions about this sort of thing, but they are currently number one in the NBA in field goal percentage. That that offensive attack is going to be a huge part of how they beat teams this year. But let's go quickly to Zeller. He started last night's game against the Bulls, had a decent performance, but he just isn't the defensive player that Al Horford is, and I think that that hurt them, even though they did manage to pull out the win. Yeah, I I think the first I was counting, and now I don't remember. I think the first five consecutive possessions for the Bulls were all attacking Tyler Zeller. That was where they went out to that quick 10-5 to lead. Brad had to call a timeout, and then the Celtics went on their run. But it was sort of similar last year, depending on you know what position teams are strong on. A lot of teams would go directly at Isaiah Thomas for the first few possessions. We'd have to call a timeout, and we'd have to try to come back from a deficit. So wouldn't be surprised if Cleveland did it again with Zeller. Repeated what Chicago tried to do, but then again, Brad could see it coming. So what about 
Jonas Derebko. He's another guy who's played decent minutes off the bench so far this season. He's not shot particularly well this year, but in general, he's one of those stretch four types. He can shoot decently from three-point range. He's acceptable, I guess, would be the word, defensive player. He's not He's not going to be one of those guys that carries you on that end of the floor, but he's not particularly hideous there either. So do you think that he's just going to lose minutes to Olenek because Olenek's just better at what he does? Or do you think that at least marginal defensive improvement from Jarebko to Olenek is going to allow Jarebko to stay in the rotation? Yeah, so Jonas played around 22 minutes against the Bulls, I think, which is about the right amount. He could lose out to Olenek, but he could also gain minutes depending on if Gerald Green keeps chucking up shots. But I thought last night was the ideal Jarebko game. He had six rebounds, which is tied for the team lead. It's not a lot, but it's what the Celtics do right now. And what what he did that Green didn't do is Jarebko hit his one shot that he had to hit. He had the nice fake and the step back, and he knocked it down. Green later in the game had an uncontested three, and he bricked it. And I know you can't hit them all, but as far as prioritizing who on the bench is going to get the minutes, I think Jarebko just does more of what we need. Yeah, that is the one thing that I that I forgot to mention about Jarebko that is important. He is the best rebounder among that sort of group of bench bigs. So if he can shoot decently and not be a minus on the defensive end, he could really help them there. So let's move from the big men into the wing rotation, or also the guard rotation. And I say wing or guard rotation because the primary player to talk about is Marcus Smart, who is 6'4", so not someone you particularly think of as a wing player, but some of his best defensive moments have been guarding threes or even fours when Stevens switched him on to Paul Millsap in the playoffs last year. The Celtics have also loved running out three-guard lineups with Isaiah Thomas, Avery Bradley, and Smart. I guess the question is, is Smart sort of a long-term small forward just based on his non-guard level shooting and ability to guard stronger and bigger players? Defensively, he could be a small forward. Last night, I think he spent a lot of minutes guarding Dwayne Wade, which is what we really needed. Wade killed us last time. Tonight, though, I wouldn't be surprised if they maybe even tried to put him on LeBron. If Jalen starts putting a rookie on LeBron, is is kind of dangerous. So, But Smart's not going to start, so maybe Jalen will cover LeBron. Jalen is big enough, though. That's one thing you mentioned it earlier, and that's one thing you can rarely say about rookies is he's got he's got the size to keep up with LeBron, and I say keep up with LeBron because you're not going to stop LeBron. Yeah. But throwing smart at LeBron seems like more of a potential issue than throwing Brown at LeBron, just because Brown's got inches on smart. The interesting thing for me about Marcus Smart is when he was at Oklahoma State and was running the offense, he was a savvy passer, he was able to create his own offense, and that just hasn't been there so far in his NBA career. He's, I think last year, was he the worst volume three-point shooter in the game? Possibly ever. Yeah, he shot four three-point attempts per game last year and connected on 25.3% of them. And that's just not sustainable. That's the kind of thing that can kill an offense. I just don't understand why Smart jacks up threes at that rate when he just hasn't been able to hit them. Is that is that a developmental thing where Stevens wants him to try and 
practice that three-point shot to get it to a decent level? Yeah, I've got a couple things on this. So the first one, which you just touched on, is if Brad Stevens is your coach, you have the green light to shoot threes, no doubt. But my other thing is that I, I, I think the three-point shooting issue is in its mental for Marcus Smart. I wouldn't say that for, for just any player, but if you if you look at the Celtics' three-point shooting against the Hawks in the playoffs, the best three-point shooter for that series was Marcus Smart, and that was before he reworked his shooting mechanics for this season. He, he doesn't seem like the type of player to get caught up on, on, on like a mental hurdle, but I, I really do think it's in his head. The other thing, interesting thing is his rookie year, he was basically league average, and he took as many threes per game as he did last season. So I guess that sort of speaks to the mental aspect as well. He's shown maybe not that he's a good three-point shooter, but that he's at least an average three-point shooter. And if you're the Celtics, you still have to play him because he's just that good on the defensive end. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if tonight against Cleveland was one of those games where he randomly hits a bunch of three-pointers. He went off against Oklahoma City last year. He had a game against Oklahoma City the previous year as well where he just randomly hit a bunch of threes. So something about, I don't know, I think he wants the game to be harder for him for him to wake up from, from three-point range. I don't know what it is. It's kind of like that Eli Manning thing. Rajon Rondo principle, national TV principle. Yeah, I guess I guess the, the NBA equivalent is Rondo, yeah. I was thinking of Eli Manning, who's always bad for 10 games, and then the Giants make the playoffs. Let's... Move on to Terry Rozier, who barely hit the rotation last year, but has been averaging around 22 minutes a game so far this season, played great in Summer League, and he's, it looks like he's gonna be their, their backup point guard, basically, after barely playing at all his rookie year. How has he, how's he looked so far after his strong Summer League and preseason performances? You know, I was totally ready to, to go off about how great Rozier is on this, but Smart came back for the game against the Bulls last night. Smart immediately plays 33 minutes. Rozier last night plays 12 minutes. And again, Marcus Smart is, you know, air quotes, he's the sixth starter. But I thought Rozier, basically I thought everyone would see more minutes than Gerald Green got. Gerald Green ended up with a bunch of minutes, so go figure. But Ro- Rozier did have a good first three games. Not he, he didn't pack the stack sheet, but he had a few points, a few rebounds. Got some assists, played some defense, just miles ahead of where he was last year. So I was I was assuming today I would be telling you, yeah, he he's he could go twenty, twenty five minutes, but with with smart back, maybe he's back to playing, you know, ten or twelve. Either way though, he's looked miles better than he did his rookie season already, and Celtics have got him under team control for another couple years, so who knows, depending on whether they end up re-signing Isaiah Thomas, depending on what they do with some of their free agents this offseason. Maybe Rozier is reduced to 10 or 12 minutes a game this year, but if he can continue to improve, he could secure a solid role for himself maybe somewhere down the line. So let's go to your article on Avery Bradley for Hashtag Basketball this week. Bradley has been incredible at the start of this season, and He's, he came into the league as, you know, someone with a lot of, a lot of deficiencies, a lot of areas to improve. He averaged five, count him, five minutes a game his rookie year. And he's just been on an upward trajectory ever since. And he's a defensive team candidate probably for the next three or four years at minimum. He's just, he just wreaks so much havoc on that end of the floor. How do you see him fitting in offensively with a really ball-dominant but wonderful 
guard in Isaiah Thomas. And disclaimer, I love Isaiah Thomas, so I won't tolerate any negative talk about Isaiah Thomas. Oh, never. Isaiah is ball dominant, but the Celtics are also pretty pick and roll heavy. And Isaiah, you know, with, with all of our guards at one point, especially when we first got Isaiah, it was kind of like we had uh, a bunch of combo guards, but Isaiah's actually taken on the, the true point guard role. And he, he seems very confident being able to drive and kick out to open shooters. So Avery has definitely been the, the greatest benefactor of Isaiah becoming more of a pure point guard. So yeah, it worked out perfectly for both players and, and what they improved. Yeah, Isaiah, after a semi-outlier season in 2013-14 with six assists per game, his assist stats are 4.1 his rookie season, 4.0 his second season, 4.2, and then a little over six last year, and so far seven and a half per game. So Thomas's improvement in his passing skills really just covers the only offensive area that he was still weak in, which allows Avery Bradley to be their defensive monster and just control that end of the floor and play off ball, make shots from the massive holes that Isaiah Thomas creates in defenses by just zipping around everybody and getting pretty much wherever he wants on the floor. Yeah, I also just want to throw it in that Jay Crowder is also knocking down everything. So to to have a lot of assists, you got to have good shooters. Yeah, and Bradley is an above-average three-point shooter for his career, but so far this year is at 52%. Now, that's the kind of number that no one, not even Kyle Korver or Steph Curry, can keep. Although, I shouldn't say not Kyle Korver, because I think his best year he shot something absurd like, 52.6%, which I'm confident is the NBA record. Yeah. But if if Bradley can go from like a 36-37% three-point shooter to a 40-41% three-point shooter, that's just going to be huge for Boston's offense, especially as they start to get Horford more and more into the mix on that end. Yeah, that 52%, I just want to throw in, that's after going, I think he was one of seven from deep against Chicago, too, so that, that kind of a testament to how much of a tear he went on but his three-point shot has gotten better Horford starting last year continuing into this year his three-point shot's gotten better especially that straightaway three and again Crowder he, he's kind of on a similar trajectory I guess as Bradley just at another position his three-point shot looked fantastic last night Crowder got hurt after like 12 minutes I think he already had 10 points on a couple threes if you want the briefest possible summary of why Danny Ainge is such a fantastic GM, Isaiah Thomas, $7.5 million this year. Avery Bradley, $8 million this year. Jay Crowder, $7 million for the next three years. They just, he managed to get these guys who are incredible players. Thomas was an all-star last year. He might be able to repeat that this year. Bradley's gotten better and better every year, and some people, including Zach Lowe, were campaigning for Jay Crowder to also make the All-Star game last year. So the fact that Ainge managed to get them on long-term contracts like they have is just ridiculous. I'm glad we're on the All-Star discussion because I think that some of the most common criticism, it's not really criticism, it's just analysis, I guess, on whether or not the Celtics can get by Cleveland, assuming it comes down to Boston and Cleveland, which who knows. But a lot of people are saying that the Celtics are still maybe one piece away still. I'm trying to, you know, egg on Danny H and make a big move. But there's been some sort of, like, fringe support for Jay Crowder to be an all-star. And there's some fringe support for Bradley to be an all-star. Do I think those guys are all-stars? No, not really. But I'm only one opinion. If the Celtics really were only one piece away and those guys are borderline all-stars, I would consider that the one piece. 
And let's not forget that Jalen Brown was a top three pick last year, and he's a rookie, and the Celtics have control of the next two Brooklyn picks. I'm so glad I'm not an NBA GM. I guarantee you I would absolutely screw up the Celtics if I had to if I had to sort through all the picks and contracts. And the thing that people forget about that deal is that Brooklyn was 49 and 33 the year before they got Garnett and Paul Pierce, and they basically <laughs> replaced Gerald Wallace and Reggie Evans with Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce. They were supposed to be a good team. If Darren Williams hadn't absolutely fallen apart, that trade would have been fine. And I wasn't a fan of the trade at the time. I'm certainly less of a fan of the trade now. But the hindsight of, oh, Brooklyn sacrificed their future for this short-term move that didn't work. The fact that the short-term move didn't work was far less about the guys they acquired than the fact that Darren Williams just was never the same again. But speaking of legends who left the Celtics, let's just quickly talk about Ray Allen's retirement. So in your piece mostly about Avery Bradley. You also campaigned for the Celtics retiring Ray Allen's number. Now, there was an interesting segment on the starters the other day that was talking about where people would remember certain NBA players, and there's a big argument about whether people would remember KG as a Timberwolf or a Celtic. But Ray Allen, I think, is an interesting case because he was a great, great player, but mostly a solitary player on his first two teams, and then he comes to the Celtics as basically their third piece. And that team gelled faster than any other superstar-laden team I can think of. And they want to ring. Yeah, the super teams of today. I'm not saying they're doing it wrong. I mean, you can't say that Golden State's doing it wrong, but the, the personalities matter so much. And the difference between the Boston Big Three and some others, Miami had some of this going on too, is that those were guys that really had been through so, so much. And they had done it all except win a title. Kevin Durant, not really in the same shoes. This, the other stars on the Warriors, they kind of already won one. I think they're going to figure it out, but personalities matter so much, and their their lack of a bench is so much more significant than what's being discussed. The The Celtics had such an unbelievably deep bench in 2008. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a bench that deep, honestly. It, it seems sort of uncommon for teams to roll like 10 or 11 guys deep uh, like in the in the Eastern Conference Finals and even the Finals Finals. The other interesting thing about that team and Ray Allen's role on it in particular is that was a defense-first team. And Ray Allen was not known as a defensive player for most of his early career, but he fit in great on that Celtics team, and they gelled right away, and they won a title in their first year. So you talked about this, and I totally agree. The recent Celtics hatred for Ray Allen and in part, that's motivated by the very public discussion of how Kevin Garnett supposedly lost his number and won't talk to him anymore. I mean, they'd been talking about trading him for at least the two seasons prior to him leaving. So I don't really understand how it's been sort of conceptualized as Ray Allen stabbed him in the back rather than Ray Allen saw how unloyal the Celtics were to him and wanted to find another opportunity yeah i just have to start off by saying i am one of i I am an extremely bitter person i am one of the most bitter people but the way you have to look at ray allen leaving and i was super mad at the time but the way you have to look at it is even though he didn't go out on the terms we wanted him to go out on and even though a lot of people even oppose like that paul pierce and garnett trade 
the way it shook out is that he went to another team for purely for the benefit of the Celtics, even if it was a backstab move. The, the emphasis I put on it in my article, which everyone should read, is that Ray was, was like the mentor for Avery Bradley. And I guess Kevin Garnett is sort of the mentor for everybody. But Ray left so much more of an impression than than just what he did while he was a player here. But, he, you know, when you look at Bradley as the bridge between the Big Three era and today, what gets looked over is that he's also the bridge between a year where we tanked to get Marcus Smart and today. And he's the only player still here from the Big Three era. And from the next year, he's like the only player we still have alongside Kelly Olynyk. And other than that, the entire roster was cleaned out. So the, the further, you know, the further into it you go, the more you realize that you can't can't really hold it against Ray Allen if you were willing to accept that. It, it was extremely beneficial in the long run, given how gassed the big three was anyways. They weren't going to... The window had closed. All right. So before we wrap up, let's just quickly go over the first few games. I want to talk mainly about their first game against Brooklyn because that was the game that I, as a Brooklyn fan of Brooklyn writer, was the most interested in. They just controlled both ends of the floor for all but about the last six minutes of the game. And the Nets almost mounted an absolutely ridiculous comeback, especially given the circumstances. Once they put their bench unit in and those guys just started playing super aggressively and that was somehow enough for them to make a charge against the Celtics. Yeah, I'm actually going to lump together the the our first game was against Brooklyn, the second game was against Chicago. We beat Brooklyn, lost to Chicago the first time. And the reason that I'm lumping these together is that they're the same game. It was, it was almost the same thing with just two different final scores. We have the starters shooting an extremely high percentage. We had trouble with rebounding. We had trouble with second chance points. Uh, a lot of the 50-50 balls were not going to the Celtics. That that Brooklyn comeback, I just, I, I wish I, they just kept scoring. I don't even, I wish I had something smart to say about it. I'm just watching and it, it, it wasn't flashy. It wasn't, it, they just kept scoring. Bojan Bogdanovic was on fire and... It was all him. Yeah, he and he nearly won, well not won, but he hit a three-pointer with like a second to go in Brooklyn's game against the Bucks too, that nearly sent it to overtime, and then of course John Henson tipped the ball in. But the last two games, and especially their most recent game against Chicago, which we've already sort of touched on, but I wanted to go back to that briefly, just because they didn't have Al Horford, and they still managed to put up a really strong offensive performance. And Isaiah Thomas put up 23-10, and 10, and that's really what did it. Yeah, I just don't think, as great of a fit as Horford is, I don't think he's totally found his spot in the lineup yet. He's he's a little hesitant to score sometimes. or He's just he's just hesitant in general, really. He's been good. He's, he's pretty steadily put up more than 10 points and had a handful of rebounds and assists. But it was it was when Crowder got injured where it really slowed down. I think we had a double-digit lead and lost it, and then Crowder got hurt. We had another double-digit lead, and then that went away. Amir Johnson somehow hits four three-pointers in a row in the third quarter. Double-digit lead again. But then that went away because Jimmy Butler decides he's a good three-point shooter again. So I don't think the Horford injury slowed them down too, too much because of the rebounding no matter what bigs we put in, they're going to get like five or six rebounds. But Crowder was, was supercharging the offense. Yeah, the thing about Horford is he's the new starter. And basically the only other player that they added that's likely to get significant minutes is Gerald Green. I don't think Demetrius Jackson is going to get major minutes. Maybe I'm wrong there. Jalen Brown is going to get 
major minutes as well, but it's not really a fit issue for him as as a rookie. Horford played for the same team for eight years, and he got very used to that system, and he's in a brand new, very different system under Brad Stevens. So given just Horford's pedigree, I think it's worth trying to give him a little more time before we decide what he's going to be. So anything else before we wrap up? Anything else? A little more appreciation appreciation for Amir Johnson, in case the, the good people listening missed it. That was that was a game for the ages. But Marcus Smart was credited for only one steal in last night's game, which I don't know. I, I swear in the first few minutes he, he had like three. Just wanted to point out that Smart looks incredible coming back. I was a little worried. I get I get so paranoid about injuries. But yeah, looking forward to we're playing Cleveland in an hour or two. I don't think we're going to win because we have two starters injured, but it's been an exciting four games. Should be a fun one. And I couldn't end any podcast about the Celtics without saying that I love Isaiah Thomas and <laughs> I love Isaiah Thomas. And maybe I love Isaiah Thomas a third time. He'll be an all-star. He'll make it. I think he's got a very good shot. I mean... Half of getting to the all-star game is reputation. So he's already made it once and he's putting up even more assists. I think he's, I think he's got it. And the other half is being a good team, which the Celtics will be this year. It helps. All right. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow our writing on hashtag basketball.com. You can also follow the two of us on Twitter. He's at Taco House, Taco, T-A-C-O underscore H-A-U-S. You can find me at MBA underscore Johnson, M-B-A underscore J-O-H-N-S-O-N. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please subscribe on iTunes. Please give us a rating. Please give us a review. I'd love to hear from you about things that you think we're doing well, things you think we should change. Any sort of feedback is much appreciated. Thanks so much for your time.